Greetings in Jesus' name. I'm Bishop Chester Wright, and this is the video teaching series, The Love of God for Us. This is lesson number 11, and this is part five of the subject, The Constancy of God's Love. And uh, I want to read to you the text, the full text that we're teaching from and focusing on in these uh, these parts of the subject of the constancy of God's love. And we know, this is Romans eight twenty eight. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, whom he also, who, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's effect? If God be, uh, it, it is God that justifieth. Who is, uh, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? That is, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And I want to focus in this lesson on verses 33 and 34, and I will read them now in the Amplified. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect when it is God who justifies, that is, who puts us in right relationship with him, who shall come forward and accuse or impeach those whom God has chosen, will God, who acquits us, verse 34, who is there to condemn us, uh, will Christ, Christ Jesus, the Messiah, who died, or rather, who will raise uh who, who was raised from the dead? Let me read that again in verse 34. I'm making a mess of that. Who is there to condemn us? Will Christ Jesus, the Messiah, who died, or rather who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God actually pleading as his, in, as he intercedes for us? And then the, the, we says it this way. Who shall bring a charge against God's chosen one, chosen out ones? God, the one who justifies? Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus, the one who died, yes, rather, who has been raised, who is at, who is on the right hand of God, who also is constantly interceding on our behalf. These are for a person who desires to know God and know the love of God, which is synonymous. God is love. I cannot know God without knowing the love of God. I cannot know the love of God without knowing God. I can't study and learn one and get to know one and have a relationship with the one without the other because they're not two. They're one and the same. God is love. That's a mathematical formula. God equals love. That's exactly what that is. God equals love. What's on one side of the equal sign is exactly the same as what's on the other side of the equal sign. 
God is love. And so on one side of the equal sign, we, we, we name, we name that one thing God. Uh, and I don't mean that sacrilegious or disrespectful to God. This is just trying to make a point. And then the, the thing that's on the other side of the equal sign, we name that love. But according to the equal sign, they're one and the same. And if you want to know God and understand God and trust the love of God and, and be able to, to count on the certainty, the constancy of God's love in your life, then these two verses make very important points that we need to receive. So let's look at the first point. Uh, who shall, uh, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Or the Amplified says, who shall bring a char, any charge against God's elect? And then, uh, we says it's, who shall bring a charge against God's cho, God's chosen out ones? And then he said, uh, that's the question. It is God that justifies. In other words, <laughs> No one and nothing has the right to charge me with sin but God. And if I am justified by God, and again, the book of Romans is written to the church at Rome uh, 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 in the present tense of that time, but because it was put in the Bible, it's obvious that all of this applies to us. Because all scripture is given by inspiration of the God is profitable for doctrine, proof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So the book of Romans was written to the church at Rome, but it was written to all of the church. To the church, not the world. The book of Romans is not written to the world. It's not written to sinners. It's written to the saved so they can understand fully where they were and why they needed salvation and how and the details, God's perspective behind the scenes of what he did to provide salvation. And then here in verse 8, this is kind of the end of the first half of the book of Romans because starting in, the, in chapter 9, the whole subject changes and God starts talking about Israel uh, through Paul in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And then he gives some practical instructions to us as uh, uh, a, the church in chapters individually and collectively in chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Okay? So this end of chapter 8 is God's big summary. It's his closing arguments for all that he was talking about in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans in trying to communicate to believers just how much what he's done for us, how, how, how hopeless it was for us to be saved. Romans chapter 3. There's none good, no, not one, none righteous. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, etc., etc., etc. And so the last part of chapter 8 is this big finale. This is God's closing arguments on the subject of you are lost, I love you, I provided salvation, and this is what all I want to do for you, to you, through you. And he says all of that. In chapters 1 through 8 of Romans. 
And so this is this concluding argument. And this is the last couple of verses is concluding argument. So he's saying not to the sinners, but to the saved. Who is going to bring, who shall, uh, uh, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. No, excuse me. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? That's the subject. That they are the subject of this discussion. Not the lost, but the ones that are already saved. God's elect. So he's saying to those that God justified... Who shall bring a charge, an accusation against those that God has justified? It is God that did the justifying. And if God justified, he's the only one that has a right to bring a charge against those that are living as his elect. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Well, if I look at that, then both... uh, Spiritually and logically and mathematically, a statement like that is conditional and you can say it both ways. The justified are saved. The unjustified are not. If I continue in his word, I'm his disciple. The flip side of that again is if I don't continue in his word, then I'm not his disciple. So if I am living as God's elect, the only one who can accuse me of anything is the one that justified me in the first place. And if he didn't spare his son in order to provide for me the means whereby I can be justified, he who, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be made the righteousness or the innocence of God in him. So if God didn't spare his own son and he justified us and we're now the God's elect, there is nobody spirit or human, who has a right to accuse me to the one who justified me. God's not ignorant. He's not ignorant of me. That's why in John chapter, 1 John chapter 1, the Lord said, if we say we have no sin, we're a liar and the truth's not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My little children, I write these things that you sin not. But if you sin, You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So the Lord knows that when he chose to leave the saved in this flesh, he knew we weren't going to do this perfectly. So if he knew all of that and planned for all of that within this time called temporal time, if you do all that, plan for all that. Then my question to you is this. <laughs> How can he accuse me or reject me for what's happening in my life that he knew was going to happen if my heart immediately wants to repent for every sin I commit? Truly re- repent. Not just cover my backside so I can keep on sinning. 
But he didn't stop there, see. Uh, who shall lay anything to charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is he that will condemneth? And the, uh, uh, the Amplified says, who is there to condemn? The, we says, who is the one who condemns? Well, what does it take to be condemned? You can't condemn somebody without presenting valid, sufficient evidence that when considered impartially produces the verdict guilty. Okay? So the Lord asks the question, who is he that condemns? Who condemns? Who has a right to condemn the elect of God? The only one that would have the right would be the one who had walked the face of this earth and by the, the, the Father living in him, being the, the deity in him, that empowered that flesh to live his 33 or so years sinlessly. The only human who ever did. The only one. Well, if God in Christ lived like that, and then Christ is the one who willingly took our sins as his, he who knew no sin was made sin for us, and willingly gave his life because all the way back in the garden, the Lord said to Adam, uh, the day you eat of this, you shall surely die. And Ezekiel says in chapter 3, 18 and 36, I believe it is, uh, in all those places, the soul that sinneth shall surely die. So death is the penalty of sin. And that's what the Apostle James says. That every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. When sin is finished, it brings forth death. So sin produces death. So when this one, Christ took my and your sins on himself and he caused that and, and he took our place in suffering the penalty. God didn't say, uh, you, you want to be safe? Okay, it, no problem. Okay, it's all, it's all right. I'll just ignore it. It's all right. He can't do that. Because wrong is wrong, right is right in God. God cannot change. He doesn't change his mind. So the only way he could forgive us was not to say, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. We may do that as humans with people. But God cannot. He cannot. The penalty, the God's own word, his word says, the penalty of sin is death. He can't go look at sin and go, no problem, it's okay, I understand, it's all right, you, you, you tried hard. No. The only way in God sin can be dealt with is somebody die for that sin. That is the un, eternal, unalterable word of God. Someone dies as the penalty of sin. Well, the only way I and you could not die for our sins is that someone who was sinless had to willingly take that, uh, that those sins as his own and die to pay that penalty. 
And when Christianity stops being Christianity and becomes humanistic religion and says, oh, it's okay with God, all you got to do is just say you confess Christ. And that takes care of everything. When the Word of God teaches totally contrary to that. Titus 3 and 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Except a man be born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. And of course, that was a parable in John 3 that he didn't explain then because New Testament salvation wasn't available till after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so, who in the world is going to present evidence against those that all of the evidence has been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the proof that somebody died for my sins? The blood of Jesus is the evidence that somebody has already paid the penalty for my sin. So, the adversary or anybody else cannot come and condemn me for that which is no longer my sin. That's exactly what the whole salvation process accomplishes. It's not my sin that is forgiven. The only way my sin can be forgiven is that he took my sin as if it was his own and he died in the place of my sin, which made it his sin in the sense that it gave him the right to die for it. So I don't have any sin to be uncovered or to be laid out as evidence against me. That is what, that's no wonder it says, his, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, provided this salvation. This salvation. He provided this salvation. How amazing is that? If I believe that, then there's no spirit nor human being that can bring a charge of, uh, uh, these are the, this is the evidence that he is guilty. Punish it. No. So therefore, that delivers me from death because death is the penalty of sin or the fear of death because death is the penalty of sin. And, and even though I am forgiven, if I, if the Lord tarries long enough, one of these days I'm going to die. But my die, death won't be like the death of the unsaved. The death of the unsaved, that'll be punishment for them. The death of the saved is a, tr- just a transition from life in this form to eternal life. Won't ever lose consciousness. So death is not the same. It may appear to be the same. But biblically, death is not the same for the unsaved and the saved. And I've been with those that appears to be both kinds when they passed. And let me tell you something. When that person is struggling to hold on to the end because they don't want to face what's coming. That is not a pretty sight. That is not a, ooh, that is, that is a painful thing to watch. But when you've been, when you're with someone that knows it's just a step, just a step from temporal to eternity 
it, from from that which has been fellowship with Christ on earth to eternal fellowship with God forever. And they're at peace with that. It is the most beautiful, gentle thing of just giving up the ghosts. In other words, the body just allows me, the soul, the inner man, the real me, to just leave the body because this is just the house that I live in. This body is not me. It's the house I live in. I am the soul. That's why at death before the rapture, the scripture says the spirit of life goes back to God which gave it. The body, the body, the house in which we live, goes back to the dust from whence it came. And the me, the soul, either goes to the resting place of the righteous dead or the holding place of the unrighteous dead, which is called Hades. Now, since the resurrection of Christ, the resting place of the righteous dead is called uh, the third heaven. It was called paradise before, and it's still technically paradise now, but it's in a new location, and it goes by the third heaven. Before, it was beneath us. Sheol, or Hades, uh, Sheol Hebrews, Hades and the Greek, was a three-compartment place, according to Jesus himself, where it was paradise, or Abraham's bosom, this great gulf, and then this place of torment and fire. But after the resurrection of Christ, Two of those don't exist anymore. The Abraham's wisdom or paradise was, was taken out of the earth and taken to this place called the third heaven Paul talked about. And then that hell or the fire part is that word Hades or Sheol now applies to the, to the just fire because that's all ex- it exists in there now. And that's the rest, that's the holding place of the unrighteous dead. Well, that's a horrible thought. It's true whether it's horrible or not. That's why a Christian that loves God and that God loves them puts God first and God's purposes and missions in the earth first in their life to try to preach the gospel to every creature to give everybody a chance not to go there. And Sheol or Hades is only a temporary holding place the eternal holding place is that somewhere at the far reaches of the universe called outer darkness, bottomless pit, uh, lake of fire, or Gehana. And we don't want people to go there. Now, if I am God's elect, I'm saved. I've been justified, sanctified by the Name of the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of our God, 1 Corinthians 6.11. Satan, the only way Satan can undermine my salvation is if in one of those periods of time when, or, or during those periods of time when I'm not perfect, in those, those moments either before I repent or even after I repent, he comes with condemnation and prevent, uh, he comes with accusation and presents, presents evidence uh, that he uses as condemnation, uh, which I've said many times, but I'll say it again here. The Lord promised us when he forgave our sins, he would remember them no more. He would cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. He would cast them as far as the east is from the, the west. Uh, he would cast them behind his back. And, of course, God doesn't have a back, so he means out of out of his mind it would be it would leave him it would exist no more 
Those sins would be forgiven and they would exist no more. In God, they would exist no more. But in this temporal life, there is evidence of that. If I, uh, if I got a woman pregnant and uh, uh, it was, she was not my wife and that baby was born, not the baby itself, the baby's innocent, but the fact that the birth, the conception was out of wedlock, I would be in sin. Now, God would forgive me. But the evidence in this life, not the child itself, but the, 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 the conception of the child, that child is innocent. But the conception of that child would be the evidence that I am uh, legitimate. Or would be the evidence that I am illegitimate. The child is is legitimate inside of God. God loves that child just as much as he loves any person. But it's the evidence of my illegitimacy as a parent outside of the plans of God. That evidence is still here. If I... Uh, if I'm doing something sin and I permanently damage myself, God may forgive me and he may heal me of the damage, but that doesn't mean the injury is restored. So there would be constant evidence in that situation that uh, I had sin. And the adversary would want to use that against me. But it's all gone in God. That's what these verses said. It's all gone. It doesn't exist in God anymore. And I have a, I have the responsibility to choose whom I'm going to believe. Am I going to believe God who says he's forgiven me and those don't exist anymore? Or am I going to believe the adversary who's trying to uncover something in my faith? Get the blood off of something that's in my faith, the blood is covered, to get me to take ownership of something again that I've already given to God and sent before on to judgment and it's already taken care of in God. This is what the love of God does for us. This is what the love of God does for us. And this is how the love of God protects us. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would allow the Lord and I would allow the Lord to cause us to believe and, and experience the love of God to such a degree that we would trust the love of God with our whole being and that that confidence in the love of God would just, we don't even have to argue with the devil, just dismiss out of mind his, his what he's trying to tell us and give God the glory and the praise and thanks for our salvation and just go on. That's the blessing of the constancy of the love of God. In Jesus' name, God bless you.